Hello and welcome to today's debate at Euractive, a hybrid event taking place in person and online. We are talking about electricity market design in an event supported by EU Turbines and Eugene. We're going to be asking the overall question, how can the system benefit from investments in flexibility? And of course, it is an extremely timely event. As last week, the European Commission published its proposal on the European elec electricity market design reform. We're going to hear about that. We're also going to hear from speakers giving reaction to it. And I encourage everyone to join in the debate. Whether you're joining online or whether you're in the room, you can scan the QR code. You'll see it there on your screens or posted around the room. Or you can go directly to slido.com and put in the hashtag flexible market design. And that will take you to the question. So we'll try and get as many of those answered in the next hour or so as possible. But I'm delighted to welcome our panelists today. We have Mathilde Lallemand Dupuis, Policy Officer at the Internal Energy Market Unit at DG Energy from the European Commission. We also have joining us Dr. Christophe Gatzen, who is the Director of Frontier Economics. Joining us online, we're delighted to welcome our representative from the European Parliament, Mia Petra Kampali Natri, who is a member of the ITRA committee at the Parliament. Martin O'Neill is Product Management and Strategy at GE Vernova. And Ralph Wetzel, last but not least, Secretary General of EU Turbines and Eugene. So let me start, Mathilde, with you. Uh, we have had a chance to read something, but give us a, a, a more introduction and, and talk a little bit about how we've ended up where we're at today. Definitely. Thank you very much for the invitation. So as you know, the Commission published last uh, week its proposal on the reform of uh, the electricity market design. And this proposal has three pillars. The first one is to protect consumers. The second one is to enhance the stability and predictability of prices through enhancing long-term contracts, long-term markets. And the third one is about accelerating the development of renewables and their integration into the system. And I think it's this third pillar on which we will focus today because it has also um, a part on enhancing flexibility as a key tool to integrate renewables into the system. So today, um, in the current uh, regulatory framework, electricity directive and regulation, there are already provisions for uh, integrating this flexibility into the system. So storage, demand response can participate to the market as uh, generators. Uh, consumer can engage into demand response. And also system operator can procure this service, uh, these services from uh, flexibility assets um, to operate their system and manage the grid. So we have today a basis. Uh, the implementation is ongoing, uh, sometimes a bit too slow, so we are also working on it. But um, the assessment that we made is that probably this won't be enough and we need an extra push uh, for this flexibility, non-fossil-based flexibility, to, uh, to develop and, um, and to help integrating uh, the system. So what is flexibility? Um, you may seen, have seen that we added a definition uh, in our proposal as the ability of the electricity system to match the variability of the consumption and generation profile. Uh, and also to match the grid availability. So it's a rather broad term. Um, and what we see today um, is that this, um, this flexibility needs, and in particular the short-term needs of this flexibility, so daily, 
hourly uh, will be uh, drastically increasing the more we have renewable into the system because these renewables, solar, wind, are very variable and their forecasts are getting more and more accurate uh, when we get uh, close to the time of delivery. Um, and to avoid that we, we curtail these renewables, we need uh, to have this flexibility uh, fully integrated and fully used. What we see today is that markets are still dominated by the generation side. An, an illustration is the capacity mechanisms where we see that uh, demand response and storage are developing, but not to a very large extent. Um, and that is why we propose a series of measures to boost uh, this uh, flexibility into the system. So the measures could be grouped in three pillars. The first one is enhancing flexibility um, at large, I would say, through support mechanisms. The second one is addressing the use of flexibility by system operators, so for the grid. And the third one is about um, uh, enlarging the possibility for trading close to real time. So if I go back to the first pillar, so supporting flexibility at large, what we propose is um, three things. The first one is to have a periodic assessment of flexibility needs. So how much flexibility is needed to achieve security of supply, but, and it's an important nuance, also to integrate renewables and achieve decarbonization. So this assessment shall be done by national regulatory authorities, based, of course, on data from system operators with a role for NSOE and the EU DSO entity as a coordinator to uh, come up with a methodology uh, and so on. This assessment will take into account all kinds of flexibilities, but uh, would have a focus at the end on the non-fossil uh, flexibility, such as demand response and storage. Second measure is to ask the member states to set an indicative objective, not a target, but an indicative objective in demand response and storage. And the third measure is to uh, enable member states to support um, this um, non-fossil flexibility, uh, such as demand response and storage, but not limited to it, either through capacity mechanisms, playing with the criteria of the capacity mechanisms, or through specific capacity payments. This is for the first pillar. Second pillar is uh, more on system operator's side, so how to further use flexibility into the system. <laughs> Uh, with uh, the definition of what we call the peak shaving product, so the possibility to introduce a new ancillary service, which would be um, a call for demand reduction at peak times, and which would be limited to demand side. Uh, second uh, would be to, um, to enable system operators to use data from what we call dedicated metering device, so a device which uh, a meter which is uh, embedded uh, with a device for to get to to pro procure uh, to sorry to provide a flexibility service to the market. So not only smart meters, but also having the possibility to use the data from other metering device that would enhance enlarge the possibility to have demand response service in the market. Market. Uh, third point for system operator would be to um, clarify that the network tariffs uh, should remunerate cap uh, capital expenditure. So here is incentive to develop grid, but also operational expenditure in order to incentivize system operators to use this flexibility service 
as an alternative solution to redevelopment. So we are completely uh, conscious on the fact that redevelopment is key, very important, so we are not putting that into question, but opening it uh, more also to alternatives and user flexibility service. And uh, fourth obligation for TSOs is, uh, and DSOs is to have more transparency uh, for connection requirements and, uh, and connection requests. So that's for the second pillar. And the third pillar is about trading opportunities, and it's the last one. Um, we want to enlarge the possibility to trade close to real time, because the more you get close to the time of delivery, uh, the more accurate gets the forecast of renewables, because they are linked to weather forecast mainly. And uh, market participants should be able to trade shortages and surplus of energy. Uh, today, it's possible cross-border until up to one hour uh, before time of delivery. And we want to push it uh, towards 30 minutes before the time of delivery. And we also want uh, market participants to be able to trade uh, between themselves in a bidding zone, whatever their poor exchange is. So um, that would be uh, all for the general uh, view of the different measures for flexibility. Thank you. Thank you, Mathilde. I'm sure we will have lots of questions and we'll come back to you with more detail wanted. Uh, Gustav, let me turn to you. And I know you have some slides, so feel free to use the clicker there in front of you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, indeed, it's uh, very interesting times. Uh, and it's good to see that we work on a, on a market design that's suited for the probably most dynamic decades we, are, we ever have in, in our um, power markets. Um, we are currently expecting to increase our power demand by about 1,500 terawatt hours in the next 25 years, depending on the scenarios. But it's two to three times the German power market. We have to um, invest heavily into renewables. Uh, we have to heavily invest into uh, power storages. Um, that means batteries into fl flexible demand, um, um, demand side management, and these kind of things. When um, I think, and I really welcome that what we are and the Commission is, is thinking about. And, and I think. One important aspect is that investing heavily into the batteries, into the networks, and into demand side flexibility just brings us maybe half there. Now, we have one problem, and this is uh, sketched here on, on this slide, is the long-term flexibility. So where do we get the long-term flexibility from? And here I brought some, some very simple calculations based on the TYNDP. So it's not our calculation, it's data actually taken from, from NSUE. And what you see here is that uh, on the upper end, you have, here you see basically individual countries, the, the black line, that's the load in the year 2050. In the scenario, with all the scenario we, we assume according to the decarbonization targets we have. And then you see the waves of various forms of generation that is mainly wind onshore, wind offshore, solar, nuclear. And then you see a gray gap between the colorful waves and the, and the, and the large black line for each country. And this gap is basically the gap that needs to be closed in these periods of Dunkelflaute or dark doldrum by the remaining generators or by storages or by demand side management. And, the, and you see on individual countries, we have, if you add up the gray areas, it's larger. But even if you assume the four countries being one cluster, you still have, and that's the lower end of the of the line, you still have a, a large gray area which need to be covered by storage, demand side management, and other power plants, uh, which in our view, or my view, um, has to be some gases fuel power plants uh, because we have to have the molecules to store the energy. And this is just a situation uh, from real data from 2009 weather data, uh, from January 2009. 
transferred into the future, assuming the existing wind farms and solar farms and the demand in the year. And there are even other years which you can take, and then you always have these kind of dark doldrums which can take like two or three weeks. Uh, and not in a one country, but in several countries. And then we just look at these, um, uh, at these um, residual loads again, so basically the gray area again. And um, if you look at Germany, uh, Belgium, Netherlands, and France together, you know, that adds up to about 55 terawatt hours in three weeks, which need to be covered by these remaining flexibility <laughs> options. If you look at Europe as a whole, that's the lower bar, you know, we even have uh, between 120 and 94 terawatt hours um, for whole Europe. And, and, and the, the 94 terawatt hours already assumes a copper plate. So in that world, we assume we can, with a PV unit in Portugal, feed a consumer, a customer in Finland, which is obviously in reality, it's not true. So we kind of assuming already a huge unrealistic network and exchange. We assume a regional distribution of all the renewables, and still we end up with about 100 terawatt hours of flexibility we need to cover in these three weeks with demand-side management, with storage, or um, with um, um, batteries, for example, in the power plant. And just to give you a flavor what that number means and how challenging it is, we kind of made some quick and simple comparisons. On the left-hand side, we have a new modern Tesla model, Model 3. These kind of cars have about 75 kilowatt hours of, of capacity. So if, to, if you really wanted to fill the gap just with these cars, which is unrealistic, but it's just to show you the, the magnitude of, of, of challenge, you would need to have 1.2 billion cars which are discharged over the three weeks period and they would never drive the three weeks. Or if you would do it with very large pump hydro storages, and that's the right picture, that's the biggest pump hydro storage in Germany. It's a one gigawatt unit with 8.5 gigawatt hour storage. Then you would need 11,000 of them. And this is basically the point where we have to think about we need molecules, and molecules are in most fires for some green gas-fired plants. So we're not talking about Russian fossil gas. We are talking about an uh, aggregation of state, which is a gaseous form of a fuel, and it has to be green in the long run. Uh, and the, we need that in addition to these flexibilities. Uh, and and I, I agree, we need storage, we need them, we need to address the short term, the daily, between day um, flexibilities. That's doable, it's expensive, but we have the technologies. But these technologies won't help us on the three week dark door drums. And that's basically, I think, something which we need to consider or maybe discuss later, and something which a little bit falls short from, from my view in, in, the, in the proposal. Thank you very much, Christoph. It's the first time I've heard something compared to one and a quarter million Teslas. It's a, a unit of measurement that's new on me. Um, Mia Petra, let me bring you in, because the ITRA committee is going to be heavily looking at this. What is your initial reaction to the reform proposals? Hello from Crete. Greetings from Finland. Uh, I'm arriving to Brussels only tomorrow. But then uh, I have to say that in ITRE we also have a perspective from different countries. So I cannot speak on behalf of the groups or uh, ITRE as a whole. So that must be clear, whatever I say. But then, of course, we uh, had the uh, peaking uh, electricity prices on the fall, and then the political promise was touched this uh, legislation. But I think uh, most of us can be happy now to see that electricity prices 
stabilized a little bit lower level than what was the expectations. So after all, there were uh, shocks on the market, but the reasons were more on the uh, peak in gas prices and not the market design as such. So there I can say that I see that what the Franz Timmermans also said, that it took several decades to build up this design for the markets, and it has been the great benefit for the consumer and also intensified investments to renewables. And this is what we need to look when we go for the details that we will keep the markets running. We need investments on renewables and then we uh, need uh, stability for the prices. So for the main goal setting of this uh, proposal is very good and, and uh, answers to the points that we want to raise. Then knowing that uh, the flexibility uh, is very important when we got the share of the renewables uh, added on. Uh, unfortunately, the, the previous um, uh, example was from the countries that are not topping on the uh, all the electricity, uh, renewable energy. The country I know best from Finland is actually the latest figure that last year uh, uh, we had electricity 89% of uh, low carbon, so that's nuclear included. So emission-free electricity is uh, more than 90-95% this year. So we also need to see that not all the markets face the same uh, needs. But then also we see that not all the uh, flexibility uh, solutions are the same for the different uh, countries and for the different time frames. Uh, if I would have a, a PowerPoint, I would show the one that uh, is very good at how many different flexibility possibilities we do have. We can use the thermal storage like in Finland, they are uh, on the company level trying now to use the excessive uh, uh, electricity time to store the heat and then uh, heating to the combined heat and power system using that uh, heat storage, the, uh, so the thermal energy storage. That's not uh, in the seconds and it's not uh, on the very um, big scale, but it's uh, quite good providing. Then we know that there are mechanical energy storages and then there are those super capaci uh, ca capacitors that go for the seconds and on the very short paces. So I think this development is happening that we need also to see the energy security. But the, the challenge here is to see that it should really answer the different markets uh, uh, in Europe, uh, not to cause uh, anywhere the security risk. But then I, I guess that the parliament will be very carefully looking that this will push forward also the green transition, so not uh, increase dependency on the gases or fossils, but then really pushing it uh, also to help to get rid of the uh, those reasons for the peaking prices. So all in all, I think that also predictability for the investments needs to kept here. And then uh, I, I very much uh, agree on this uh, adding power for the power purchase agreement and uh, contracts for difference that will also help uh, electricity companies and producers to stabilize their systems. So I am a bit cautious personally to all the very detailed solutions as we know that no company can be happy a long time if they cannot provide the security for their consumers as well. Thank you very much indeed.
Martin, let me uh, turn to you and get your initial perspective. Thank you. I mean, today I'm here representing GE Vanova, and, and GE Vanova is our portfolio of energy businesses, as, as was formerly known as General Electric. Um, we have generation assets across the full spectrum, whether it's onshore wind, offshore wind, um, gas-fired power generation, nuclear, steam, hydro, and then all of the grid um, capabilities and orchestration that holds all that together. Um, I think an interesting point here is that more than a third of the world's electricity is produced via General Electric equipment. So as we start to prepare for our GE Vanova spin, our portfolio of energy businesses, um, we actually create employment for 26,000 people in Europe today. Um, and we are as interested in what happens in the EU27 block as we are in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act or with the Dispatchable Power Agreement in the United Kingdom and some of the incentives that are ongoing there because we see these as catalytic regions in the energy transition. And obviously, whatever market design or market reform that gets put in place, that is going to be the catalyst for research and development, new product development and integration. Um, I would say that we really are quite quite pleased um, and really do welcome the energy market design proposals. Um, I think that, first of all, when I think about my personal journey coming to Brussels over the last 24 months, the quality and the credibility of the debate has just improved exponentially. Uh, we've gone away from somewhat jingoistic, simplistic narratives about happy hydrogen solutions and the future will be all renewables. I think that this energy market design proposal respects and shows a true comprehension um, of the vital role that all different technologies play in the energy transition. I think the technology agnostic uh, nature in which it's been constructed is something that we should truly celebrate. Uh, and I'm glad that we've moved away from favorite children and instead gone towards low carbon technology incentivization. That gives original equipment manufacturers such as ourselves and our competitors the ability to really understand the innovation space that we can work with. Um, Vanova's mission is to electrify. There's going to be a huge increase in demand, and, and Christoph was certainly pointing at that. Um, as we add electric vehicles to grids, as we add electric heat pumps to grid, as we start to electrify industrial processes, and at the same time, we need to decarbonize assets faster. So I think here we have a toolkit with which we can really start to work. Um, I particularly um, appreciate the vital role of the grid and some of the capex and opex measures that are present within the proposals um, and the transparency also and the flexibility that it leaves member states to set their own rules for contracts for difference and also to protect the consumer on the other side. So I think there's an awful lot of things to admire here. Um, to just kind of flip the coin a little bit, I, I will resonate with some of the themes that Christoph's planted. Obviously, one of the privileges of, of working for a company like Vanova is that we're in front of customers all the time. Um, and it's really, really hard to have conversations about, I would say, longer term um, energy generation 
from either thermal assets or even hydro, those are 20, 30, and sometimes even 50-year business cases that need to be clearly underwritten. So any vagueness in longer-term flexibility, economic incentives and mechanisms, means that it's very, very hard for asset operators for new projects to attract financiers and to put that together. Um, what Christoph was basically pointing at, and, and full disclosure, we've done some work together on German market design and German generation uh, capacity requirements for 2030. I think the number, Christoph, was that by 2030, Germany is going to be missing somewhere between 15 and 40 gigawatts of dispatchable capacity. Uh, and that's capacity that needs to be there for the Dunkelflaute, right? Um, something I learned today, thank you. Um, but basically, you know, the gestation of a power plant is uh, probably a five to seven year journey. Siting, permitting, project financing, interconnections to grids, and then the actual construction, the competition that goes on to choose the uh, EPCs and the equipment suppliers. We need to be worrying about that in 2023 to meet a, 2020, a 2030 target. Therefore, I would observe that similar conversations are ongoing um, in the United Kingdom, which is not part of the EU27, um, but very similar conversations are ongoing there, and many of the other member states have a similar problem as well. So I would just say, good start, very credible piece of work, which we're excited about and we welcome, but I do think we need to think about this longer-term generation gap, um, because ultimately, if we can't connect financiers to operators to actually get those projects moving, we are heading towards a big problem fast. And I'm not talking about 2050. I'm talking about 2030. And in my business, which is long cycle industrial products, 2030 is literally tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph. <laughs> I'm gonna hand you the floor. Uh, you've a lot to react to there. <laughs> yeah, yes indeed. But I try to limit that so that we have some discussion. But maybe I think we, we should just remind ourselves that we're changing the way the electricity market functions over uh, a bigger period. We come from a system where we had electricity demand and we were planning how much to generate and we were producing that amount of electricity. Now the new system is going to be different. The new system takes the generation from renewables as given. And then we see how we can adapt demand. That's the demand side management. And then there's a certain gap, which is then the residual load. And there, for that purpose, we inject uh, either stored electricity or we generate new, uh, newly generated electricity. That part apart from the renewables which are given, is what I understand as the flexibility part, to kind of bring this generation from the variable resources and uh, renewables and the demand into line. Now, that makes a lot of sense, and I think the Commission split that up very nicely in, in the proposal to say we need to push renewables and we need to 
push flexibility. Now, I think on the flexibility side, it's simply that um, the proposal looks at only parts of what we need, and I think that has been mentioned before, demand-side management, for sure, given battery storage, for sure, whatever we can get as capacity. But then there is more because we will have those moments that Christoph showed that will not happen too often, but they will be there that for a week in winter there's not enough um, generation there. And now for that purpose we need some generation that produces the amount that we need and whenever we need it and as long as we need it. And that cannot be done by storage because storage doesn't provide new things. It's empty at some point in uh, time. So we need that, but at the same time we want that generation to stop immediately when we have enough renewables back in the system. So um, that's the challenge that we need to, to look at. And um, now the question is, how do we incentivize investments in such a technology that will not run a lot of time, but it needs to be there when we need it? And I think there, the traditional approach was that we said electricity market design, that's going to be done by the short-term market. The short-term market will see if there's not enough generation, then prices will go up. And that creates the incentives for investing in technology that can produce when the renewables are not there. Now, over the past years, I think we learned two things. One is um, investors don't like the unpredictability of those moments when they will happen. So they are not willing to put money in. And secondly, member states, countries find it difficult to accept the peak prices going to very high levels because that influences consumer prices. And that's, I think, one of the lessons of these energy crises that we had there. So that, if that is not sufficient, then what else? Commission proposal uh, has a chapter on um, incentivizing investments in new generation. And that idea there, in theory, is perfect, saying we need to tackle the problem of predictability of the income side by looking at creating bigger uh, long-term uh, markets. Now, fine, but that doesn't work for this type of technology because uh, it's still connected to paying by kilowatt hours. And if we don't want uh, those plants to run a lot of time, then we shouldn't incentivize them to produce and sell the most that they can do. So I don't think that's the solution. What's the solution then? I think we need to pay those plants for what they provide as service to ensure that the system is stable and reliable. And for that, we need to define what does it take. And the term flexibility alone is not specific enough because flexibility can be you need to be there in a second and need to be able to fill a gap of two hours. But flexibility is also to say, you're going to be called and then you need to deliver in two hours, but at least for five days. And this part is the missing part in uh, the market design proposal, I think. I think the commission did a lot of things right in the proposal. I think 
almost everybody in Brussels was happy that the short-term market was not damaged by the proposal. Uh, we've seen the support for renewables. We see the support for the short-term things, but we don't see anything in there that helps for these investments in um, capacities for tackling the problem of the long-term flexibility needs. And there, I think it, we can do better, and it's um, the wrong approach to hand-select technologies but it would be better to define capabilities and then let the market work uh, and provide those solutions. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph. Well, I see already questions coming in. Um, I have to say, primarily aimed at the Commission asking, why didn't you, why will you explain some more? But we'll come back to a few more of those, but let's uh, talk a little bit about um, flexibility timeframes and the legislative proposal includes this uh, wording that it covers all relevant market timeframes. Explain to me a little bit about the timeframes you have in mind. Um, what are we talking about? So I think, I mean, and we, we see it very clearly in the debate now, there are different timeframes, longer term and shorter term. Seasonal, the Dunkelflaute, clearly it's more like um, seasonal, monthly, weekly. Um, and then you have the very short time, daily, uh, hourly. Um, I think, um, First important in the assessment of flexibility that we propose to be done uh, by um, so uh, every two years and to assess the flexibility needs for our member states, we clearly say that the flexibility should be uh, calculated seasonal, uh, daily, hourly, because uh, we think it's important to address both long term and short term. Then it's true that in the reasoning and in the measure we propose, the focus is more on short term because it's really on the variability of renewables because we see today that uh, this short term flexibility is mainly dominated by gas. And if we want to phase out gas, we need other means. And that's why we focus on non-fossil flexibility such as demand response, storage. Storage could be battery, pumped hydro, so it's rather uh, large. But we focus on the, I would say, the non-generation side of things um, a, bit, a bit more. But the support schemes could be on any type of non-fossil flexibility. And uh, I think if we, if, we have, um, if we want to focus more on long-term here, and to answer a bit your comments, here the capacity mechanisms would be rather the answer and is already there. And uh, so the Commission has chosen not to reopen this uh, provisions, but we believe today the capacity mechanisms would be an answer uh, to, to the point which uh, were raised on, on longer term flexibility, these plants which needs to be activated only a few uh, hours, weeks, months in the year. Uh, that would be rather the here. But the, the intention was to give an extra push to short term flexibility. Well, thank you. Um, Christophe, let me ask you a little bit about this uh, regular flexibility needs assessment plan. Uh, so every second year, member states must assess the needs of the system for at least the next five years. Um, do you think this is a useful instrument? Is this how you would have approached it? Well, I, I think, as I said, I think we, have, we are entering super dynamic times. So knowing where you are and where you're heading is super important. Huh? So I think adding an extra layer of transparency and monitoring it uh, with the help of the TSOs and DSOs is definitely a meaningful thing. I think there are two, at least two things to consider. One is um, flexibility is not national. No? For example, if you look at the German power market for years, we use the Alpine regions for flexibility. No? So if we have wind, we export electricity to the Alpines or to Scandinavia. If we have no wind, the electricity gets back. No? So I think any, any view or assessment of monitoring of flexibility needs has to be wider than national. 
And the second point is, I think I fully agree, we have to be transparent. What kind of flexibility are we talking about? And as Ralph said, it's very important to be specific because some technologies can deliver a certain flexibility product, others can't. And that is so, so super important to be very accurate and specific. And the third point is, if I monitor, um, I, I would come from the what do I need? You know? So what are the specifics I need and not from the technology? Um, as I understand it currently, the setup is um, I do monitor and then I say we need 100 storages and 500 DSM units. You know? But in the end, I need 50 quick flexibilities, 80 medium quick and maybe 100 long term. And I don't care if it's DSM, battery, pump hydro storage or whatever. You know? So I would kind of organize it more from the featuring and for the characteristic of the product rather than from the technology which is delivering it. Because some of the products can actually deliver various forms of flexibilities. Uh, Mia Petra, let me, um, let me ask you again, staying on this question of timeframes. We're, we're looking up to 2050. Are we in a position to make those judgments now, even though as, as we're hearing uh, from Martin, this has to be the sort of timeframe we're thinking in? I am a strong believer that for the transition that it happens, it was the record year of the wind in the system and, and, and most uh, wind and solar for the first time. So really uh, clean renewables uh, was added on on the system last year. Was it 16 gigawatts? And it's still uh, not uh, on the track what is needed to reach there. But I, I'm a strong believer that the war on the continent on predictability of the next winter will even deliver here more. And that's why I think the long-term signals here uh, are very important, uh, even though they are, of course, on the interest of the investors to do the same time. So I try to read this, that uh, improvements on the long-term signals translate into the uh, investments at the same time to the renewables and the storage systems because knowing that adding flexible renewables alone will not last so that is the case already and I also want to have the idea of looking the countries already with the very high number of renewables because that debate was very familiar to me to 10 years ago 15 years ago that we can not add this much weed we can not add this much solar so that's kind of old story for the countries that are adding on that much already so saying this doesn't mean that I don't uh, see that it's vital and important on this long term. But then only also knowing and emphasizing that the knowledge from the grid and knowledge from the equipments was mentioned here. So digitalizing the system and knowledge will also give the better reflection. So the enable this uh, demand side, because also the demand side is not only the consumers, but it is what the weather brings alone. Uh, do you need to warm up more? You need to use the electricity more so this kind of a uh, little bit forward-looking uh, analysis more accurate also will help on this flexibility needs well thank you I mean, we're focusing a lot on winter of course it's not the same all across the eu in malta for example the big problems happen in the summer when we need cooling um but let me ask martin are we are we in danger of uh you know we, we're seeing due to geopolitical reasons uh problems at the moment um, but we're not in a situation where we're seeing constantly rolling blackouts across the EU. I mean, it's, it's not quite as doom and gloom as we're making out, is it? I think, um, honestly, this is driven by a belief system about how you see a net zero trajectory. Um, and, and I probably spend 
far too much time with my nose poked in pretty much everyone's net zero forecasts and plans. Um, we need wind this decade to increase by 300%. And quite frankly, renewable supply chains are not building out that fast. The economic incentive to original equipment manufacturers in the wind segment has meant that it's very hard for a reinvestment cycle to be driven, even with all of the economic stimulus that's been provided. So renewables is probably not going to grow as fast as we would like it to in any net zero scenario that I've read. Um, so we should just kind of think about that carefully. Um, it takes about six to eight years to site and permit any kind of interconnect. And that's before there are any kind of environmental issues and protests. And I live in, in Madrid in Spain, so I'm quite familiar with the interconnect that was built there that took uh, 24 months to construct after 18 years of uh, legislation and legal problems. And that was a relatively humble 1.4 gigawatt interconnect. Um, what I'm trying to articulate here is net zero trajectories are not actually plans that are anchored in any kind of reality. And if we really want to be 55% reduction in, in CO2 emissions in the EU block by 2030, we're going to have to really be pushing all the levers that we can. Um, and that means that thermal generation and nuclear definitely have a role to play. Um, increasing demand for electrification, heat pumps, EVs, electrification of industry, I, I keep pointing at those areas because for the first time in a long time, we're going to see significant growth on European grids, 25% this decade. It's been a hell of a long time since we've been contemplating numbers like that. And the grid investments just aren't happening fast enough to deal with any of it. What it actually means is that you're going to stress thermal assets and dispatchable assets more than before, or you're going to need more of them, or you're going to need to have more of them and decarbonize them. So any electricity market design reform proposal that doesn't recognize those factors or um, doesn't dance in perfect harmony with the Net Zero Industries Act or with the European, um, with the emissions trading scheme, with the ETS, we need to look at how the electricity market proposals dance together with those other two tools because we're going to need dispatchable thermal assets we're going to need more of them, and we're going to need to explain to financiers and investors how we can make their 20 and 30 year business case whole. Because it's not doom and gloom, it's, it's not doom mongering. The projections that Christoph is, is tabling here, that's factual work based on studies. Um, and, and wherever I travel around the EU 27, it's a very similar story. We're going to decarbonize through renewables growth with electrification. We're going to take gas boilers. They're going to become electrified heat pumps. We're going to use arc furnaces instead of coal to smelt steel and aluminium. This is real. So choose. We need to choose between the lesser of the evils, and we need to recognize that some of those harder to abate segments require economic stimulus and the business cases need a firm posture to be underwritten. Um, those are tough things to say out loud, but we need to say them. I'm going to come back to the investments question in a bit, but first, um, Ralph, let me ask you on a sort of 
a very broad brushstrokes question, which is if we're going to rely on gas or fossil as backup for those dark doldrums periods when renewables aren't, how do we avoid those becoming the competition for renewables uh, at different times of the year? Good question. Um, maybe just as a starting point, I think there is a mess up between words when we talk about gas power generation. A gas power plant is not a fossil technology. A gas power plant uses a gas to produce electricity. And what type of a gas this is, is up to our decision. Uh, we used fossil gas, and we still use it as the main source, because that was available in large quantities and cheap. Now, that situation has changed, and we also know about the disadvantage of burning fossil fuels. So, but those power plants, the big advantage of those power plants is that they provide this dispatchable, planable uh, electricity, and we can operate them, the same plants, with renewable gases as well. So, don't mix up the fossil with the technology. It's the fossil uh, fuel that you put in, and you can put in another one. You can put in biomethane, you can put in green hydrogen. Things are there, but the technology still makes sense uh, because it provides something that the system needs. And that's uh, why I think the wordings in, in, in the Commission proposal always saying non-fossil. In theory, they are right, but what they have in mind is wrong. Uh, well, you want to exclude gas power plants uh, because you think they are fossil. And that's the, the fault in the thinking. You should just say they shouldn't use fossil fuels. And when you read, uh, and I think just coming back to uh, the point, Mia Petra mentioned that, of course, different countries have different starting points and different strategies to decarbonize. And we have some countries that rely on nuclear, which means they have much less variation in, in their um, generation. If a country goes that way, then the problem is smaller with, when it comes to uh, the need for this flexible uh, backup. If you have a country with a lucky uh, situation that your geography uh, bring, uh, offers you a lot of hydropower, you have a, a dispatchable renewable source. But most of the countries rely on wind and PV, and there's some, some problem connected to that that you can't guarantee. You can't better plan, and we, we touch that and predict. But still, that challenge remains. And for those countries, it's the solution uh, that you need this dispatchable backup uh, generation. And that doesn't mean that it has to be fossil, and it should be limited. Finally, after long thing, answering your question, those plants shouldn't not run in competition to renewables. But that is not a real challenge anymore because of the operating costs of the renewables being lower, also because ETS increases the costs for fossil generation. So that's going to be sorted simply by the cost side. I'm going to take a, a question uh, directly for you, Christoph. Um, 
regarding Germany, um, surplus electricity could be stored as H2. Germany has existing gas storage capacity of 220 terawatt hours. I'm reading from the question, I haven't checked. Um, so why not use that or part of it um, repurposed for H2? Um, actually, we are, uh, Germany is thinking about that. No? So the, the plan is indeed um, to use some of the um, flexibility. So like the, the German minister Habeck, he announced that there will be a new power plant strategy. So he's aware of this problem. No? And on a national level, we are aware. We say we are missing um, dispatchable firm capacity, especially in the south of Germany. And um, there will be an announcement that he says something between 17 and 25 gigawatts of new power plants. Uh, on short term, there will be structured and flexibilized via a methane network, but there is a, a strong push um, in Germany to also come up with the so-called hydrogen backbone, uh, and that is a, a hydrogen infrastructure across all Germany, linking it to Netherlands and the south to, uh, to, to, to the MENA region. Uh, and um, this is then the source where you can also use hydrogen power plants. Uh, and uh, the plan is that there are a couple of new products, and these products have to be either directly hydrogen fired or have to be hydrogen ready so that you can switch them um, when you have the hydrogen at the pipeline at your gate from methane to hydrogen. No? And th there is, uh, from a German angle, it's, it's quite clear um, that uh, a, a blue and a green hydrogen will, will play a role, um, blue in the medium term and green hydrogen definitely also in the long term to exactly solve this problem which I just sketched. Uh, another question, Mathilde, for you. Um, as I've said, we're going to get a lot of questions. Why didn't you? Uh, so why did the Commission propose an indicative objective for storage and demand response rather than a target? And what is the practical implication of this? I think that's a very good question. Um, because uh, I think the, and, and we, we, we touched on this question, the technology neutrality. You have a, a, a need and you, uh, you assess your need, so how much do you need? And then you have technical um, requirements and then any technology could respond to it. So that's, that's really uh, the, the idea behind. Um, so then I think the question would be rather from this perspective, why did we propose an indicative objective? Uh, so first, the target was going too far. I mean, the target is like for renewables. You say you need this technology and not another one. And indeed, other technology than demand response and storage could uh, contribute. Uh, the idea of having this objective is to give a further boost to this part of the market because the generation side um, has mechanisms of so the capacity mechanism. We see it's, it's really dominated by, uh, by, by generation side. We saw in the latest auctions uh, that um, in some member states we have an increase of demand response and storage, but in some others not at all. It's, it's really uneven and rather slow. So the idea is to give really a push to these two technologies uh, to be fully part of the market because in, uh, so in the uh, 2019 clean energy package, we have uh, this requ the requirement for them, storage and demand response, to fully participate on equal footing with generation, but these developments are a bit slow. So the objective was an extra push, but then the support scheme is on any type of uh, non-fossil flexibility, and, and uh, so it's not limited. And if you have renewable gas or biogas, this could also be, um, be supported. Well, again, another question, <laughs> sort of, um, Asking uh, for you again, Mathilde, uh, why is there no article focused on auctioning for new renewable electricity capacity, including system services provided by baseload geothermal electricity in the proposal? 
Um, I'm not sure I completely get it, but for, for, I mean, for renewables, we have an article that say that uh, for any new support scheme, uh, you need to go for a contract for difference, meaning that um, you need an upward limitation for, um, for the revenues. So that's a bit uh, the following up of the crisis and the inframarginal cap. So rather to support uh, renewables, but also limiting windfall profits. Um, and then, uh, I mean, for system operation services, it's also open to renewables. So it's it's technology neutral approach. Okay. I'll try and I completely answer, sorry. I'm scrolling through a lot of questions very fast at the moment here. Um, but Martin, um, let me come back to you with uh, another question, um, suggesting that gas networks carry three to five times as much energy as electric networks. Could you shift surplus electric to H2 and reuse the gas networks? Um, okay, so good question. I think, first of all, it costs about 10 times to move an electron what it costs to move a molecule. That's something good to have in mind. Um, building pipe work is less intrusive visually, and therefore you suffer a bit less um, environmental activism and therefore generally siting and permitting is somewhat easier. I think that doping existing um, CH4 methane natural gas networks with hydrogen is possible and safe to a certain limitation, which seems to be generally accepted to up to and including 20%. But after that, hydrogen is a very tricky molecule. It's, it's incredibly small compared to CH4. You can't see it, you can't smell it, and you probably don't want it coming out of your stove in your kitchen. This is the reality that people Perfect. don't often grasp. So how much hydrogen you dope into an existing pipework, very quickly what you're contemplating is you need a hydrogen network. You need a hydrogen grid. And when you accept that reality, then the hydrogen grid needs to make sense economically because economics drive everything. And therefore, when we see economic stimulus in place that allow hydrogen grids to be built out rapidly, then we'll know that the hydrogen economy is really on the way. Um, until then, we're in this phase of experimentation, um, pilot projects and demonstrations, which is all good. Um, I think in 1908, we demonstrated that when you uh, apply electrolysis to water, you can produce hydrogen. So I'm glad that we keep demonstrating that. Um, I think we really need to be a bit more serious about the different ways to stimulate a true hydrogen economy. And the good news is when we do put the economic stimulus in place, those molecules will be precisely what you need and one-tenth of the price to transport to the existing infrastructure that Ralph was pointing to, which is power turbines that are fuel agnostic, we are having a lovely conversation here, but we are committing a little bit of a crime by ignoring affordability. And if the crisis, the war in Ukraine has, has taught us anything, it's the electricity pricing and the effect on the consumer. Um, we now see the whiplash that that generates for you know, homes and families. Some of the concepts that we're discussing here would take that situation and multiply it by five. I just need that to be front and center. So everything we can do to take advantage of existing infrastructure and steel that's already in the ground, we should be, we should be doing it. 
So let's not talk too much about hydrogen economies if there's no stimulus in place and the infrastructure isn't being built. Uh, Ralph, um, let me just come on to the capacity remuneration mechanism. Um, they're in the existing market design and not change. Is that the suitable tool for flexibility? Um, it may be partially. Um, I think um, capacity alone is not the solution because there's flexible and inflexible capacity. That's for a start. So we need to more discuss features or capabilities um, instead of in, in, in total just talking about capacities. But the, um, the idea behind that, the principle is, of course, right to say um, we're going to pay uh, not for kilowatt hours produced, but for providing services that stabilize and ensure the stability of the grid. And that's the, the general principle behind the capacity remuneration mechanisms. Now, um, so I think one thing to be corrected is this um, capabilities that need to be included. But the second thing is, if we look at the electricity market design, then this is a tool foreseen as a temporary measure to fix temporary adequacy uh, gaps or problems. It's not foreseen the way it's formulated as a tool to, to provide predictable support for long-term uh, flexibility investment. So in that sense, yes, in theory it could be, but not the way it is there. Mia Petra, I mean, I'm seeing some comments coming in here uh, from our audience, and they're suggesting new technologies, new innovation as partly the solution. Also things like uh, hybrid heat pumps and smart cogeneration. What sort of degree is there a hope for something new to solve problems in the future, or do we need to really stay focused on market reform? I think this market reform needs to help us for this transition. And I'm a bit cautious always when you underline the need to stick to the fossil system, because that might be a stranded asset as we are developing the possibilities to speed up the transition. And I thank Commission on that idea that how this will boost the integration and boost the investments on the re renewables. So I'm not that as skeptic as some uh, colleagues on the panel on the, the way forward. It was the record year last year for wind. It has been the first time more on uh, solar. And I say that as coming from the north, not much of sun, but snow uh, today. Uh, and still there are these ways. So I'm, I'm a bit cautious also to say that hydrogen uh, readiness is the way to keep you where you are, but then really give the push that then uh, what can be trans, uh, transition. So for me, I would not uh, give a promise of the cheap and cheaper always when you stick to the fossils. That is not also what we saw last year due to the many, the many reasons. So that I, I guess is the atmosphere in the parliament and it's not always that we don't understand or see that, but we try to see where the best uh, examples are. I don't say that it's not needed for uh, uh, for the uh, 
flexibility parts, but then also that if you create this uh, need for the existing system and don't see the way forward, also I, I think it is not uh, the balanced way and that needs to be realistic and then to look the best uh, best answers. For the capacity mechanism, that was discussed a lot uh, in, inside of the parliament too. So you can think of the, some benefits for the consumer pricing uh, or forward-looking con uh, consumer promises. But uh, there has been also a lot of criticism on talking that, that it would not uh, push for the change that is also needed, but kind of halt the situation that is today. And we know that the uh, sector is investing all the time. We have to keep this in mind that it in for the transition and Pedro, I think we, we missed the last bit of what you were saying, but I think the, the, the gist of it was, was clear. Um, to come back to another audience question on the issue of reforming wholesale power price formation. What do the speakers think of using weighted average cost of production and what do they think of the French, Spanish and Greek proposals? I don't know, does anyone want to take that? <laughs> It's directed at the whole panel. Uh, Ralph, I'll put you on the spot first. <laughs> okay, now that's uh, the pleasure of answering the nice question. Um, yeah, well, um, I, I don't really believe in this way of formulae or, or organizing markets, I have to say. I think the, uh, the principle that we use today, um, based on that famous merit order, that makes a lot of sense uh, for an economist like me to organize the market. Now, defining average costs or whatever, um, what would be the average cost? Um, how, how, how granular do you want to become in saying, okay, I take a wind turbine, uh, wind generation, do I take offshore and onshore as one? Do I split between large and small with completely different costs? So I don't think this is practically an approach that's gonna help by having state-defined costs. That's not gonna work. I think the market price is the better uh, steering tool. Mathilde, I'll, I'll take your view as well on this. Yeah, um, I think it's an important question because it has been heavily debated this year, but as it was said in the panel, I think this debate has really evolved uh, in the last months. And it is to be noted that um, in the public consultation that the, the Commission did, uh, we got really an overwhelming majority uh, of answers saying that we should not change this how short-term market works because they do deliver the right economic signals. Um, it's true that we see how... Uh, now, this economic signal is translating into the economy, and this is a link that we need to address. And the Commission, in its proposal, addressed this uh, through the reinforcement of long-term markets, so having a more uh, so contract for difference uh, and uh, power purchase agreements that would reflect more the true costs and the average costs, uh, but still preserving these short-term market signals uh, that are key to have an efficient dispatch and also to, um, to have signals for demand response, since we are talking about flexibility. Martin, your thoughts? Um, far from an expert on this subject, but I think um, distortion of markets, governmental intervention generally is something that I'm probably not a big fan of. 
Um, and as I said, I, I live in, in Madrid, so I've obviously lived this from the inside out. Ultimately, um, that's taxpayer money that's being reallocated in a different way to generate a short-term consumer effect. So let's just contemplate different ways of thinking about what I might have just said. Um, ultimately, this is a really complex thing. People, people tend to pick on a thing, merit order dispatch, pricing order, contracts for difference, PPA. Policy works in a very rich tapestry, and it's all interconnected. And you heard me trying to interconnect earlier ETS to the Net Zero Industry Act to this uh, energy market reform. It all needs to dance together. So I think when we reach in and change something because it helps us in the short term to generate a consumer effect that may be pleasing in the short term, I think it could very well be damaging in the long term. And ultimately, there's no such thing as free money. So if we're trying to protect the consumer, we just need to be realistic about what's really going on. And Christoph, your thoughts? Well, I fully agree. As an economist, it's a kind of weird idea to, um, uh, to stop the marginal cost principle because it's nothing the power industry has invented. It's like one-on-one textbook knowledge of how markets work. Uh, and secondly, I think if you really want to kill flexibility, then you do something with average prices. I mean, exactly what you said. We have hours where we have too much energy, then we have zero negative prices. That's where the storage cell charge, and that is delivered by the price signal. And then we have a scarcity price, which is really painful and expensive if you are short in that moment. But that shows you the short-run marginal cost of, let's say, burning hydrogen or dispatching a power plant or doing uh, demand-side management. And that is then a marginal price of doing that. And that's exactly the price signals we need, and that come from the marginal pricing principle. Thank you. I have a question here on nuclear and what role nuclear should play uh, going forward in the mix, in particular taking into account what consumers might want. Um, Martin, perhaps you could tackle that one, please. Yeah, it's a base load, low carbon form of planable dispatchable energy. And I think um, we should definitely be contemplating nuclear in the energy transition to fill some of the gaps that we're recognizing we've got other challenges with. Um, there are countries inside of the EU27 that are more pro and less pro carbon capture leaning, for example. Um, the perpetuation of fossil fuels we've talked about in this panel today. Um, the speed of the transition to hydrogen. Where there is uncertainty, double down on nuclear. Um, and I think that honestly, small modular reactors driving scalability of more modular repeatable plants, faster deployments with strong safety case regulation and governance, and designs in 2020 being, I would say, far superior from a safety and containment um, from perhaps you know, predecessor technologies that have evolved from 1950s and 60s designs, I can get really, really excited about, about nuclear. And I think we should. I think that, um, and I've often said this in, in, in panels in Brussels, there is a, there's an education lever that we need to pull. And we need to start looking at things such as nuclear safety versus um, mortality index caused by respiratory issues. If we really wanted to have a, a serious debate about the safety of nuclear, um, I think you would find that it is one of the safest technologies on planet Earth. 
for power generation and it's extremely low carbon intensity. And I think it should be a piece of the energy transition for sure. Mia Petter, let me uh, bring you in um, just to talk about a little bit. Uh, we talked about the situation with regard to Russia. Um, how big a role is the geopolitical context having on these discussions? Because we can't ignore it entirely, but is it to the right degree in, in our discussions when we look to the far future? It poses us a challenge still that decoupling is slow. Uh, it was much faster the whole last winter that we heard for the specialist and, and uh, people on, on board uh, discussing it. It was almost impossibility on the um, discussions on the September, October. And now we see how the last winter the decoupling and then really reducing the buying the forces from Russia really uh, went better than we ex uh, expected. Uh, so, and in all in all, the uh, dependency on the fossil gas has been less, and I really wish it will not come back, but then uh, rather to speed up the other sources as it happened already. So uh, this continues to be the track. It's not also the uh, surprise to analyze the replacing of the Russian gas. It has not been the democratic world. And that is what the parliament still remembers. So that's why also uh, just replacing uh, Russian gas with the Azerbaijan gas or something, it's not that easy, or Qatar. So these countries are not the, the easiest one to, to also be uh, trading with a, a long, long term. And then we see also that IRA in the USA, that is posing the uh, big challenge for us to keep on track. If we see that at the, today the investments on the renewables and technologies also is like Europe is uh, presenting half on the global markets, but now only the USA started. So the competition will be even higher and we will have to keep on that track. So that really uh, is on the equipment, but then of course the equipment needs some users. So then this is the reason to really take the steps forward to the renewables and not to give the false promises going back or remain on the something cheap uh, uh, fossils. And the war is not over, next winter will come. So I will not give full promises that it will be uh, beneficial to continue paying Russia with the, any um, energy form that we are still uh, having. Well, thank you. Um, Ralph, let me ask you um, a question, sort of staying on this political theme. What, in your view, would be the key political measures to drive investments in adequacy and in flexibility? Um, I would say it's two things. One, and we haven't talked about it um, or just very briefly touched it, paying for grid services is something uh, that we're not doing adequately at this moment. Um, it has been in the past a given thing because we had those big fleets of coal power plants, uh, gas power plants, nuclear power plants that provided those grid services, um, balancing energy uh, inertia, whatever, automatically. I think we should recognize that as separate services that we need to pay for because they're important for the system. The second thing is indeed we should um, 
accept that we will get, hopefully, many, many days per year where renewables will cover 100% of the supply of the demand, but that we will need a backup. I always tend to compare it with a liability insurance. Nobody wants to have an accident. Nobody likes to pay for an insurance. But what you want to be is you want to be sure that if that bad accident happens, somebody is paying. And I think that we have to accept also for the backup uh, to the renewables because we rely on not that our system works most days, but 99 point something days uh, of the time. And therefore we should provide payments for really um, providing those capabilities that are important that this system works. And I think that's something I already said, but just can repeat it. Uh, that's the missing part. Well, we're in our last few minutes, so I'm going to go for a round of closing statements, but I, I will acknowledge that we've had some questions that all come in at the last moment or two. Uh, someone asking about peak shaving products and what's your opinion on those. Uh, another suggesting that insecurity, ins insecurity about the stability of the regulatory framework is driving away investment, as well as other questions regarding hydrogen as well and batteries, storage and quite a few other things that we didn't have time to get to. But Mathilde, I'll ask for your uh, closing comments. Feel free to tackle any of those or ignore them as you wish. Uh, I think the question on investment certainty is very important. And, uh, and um, many of the measures which were proposed try to tackle this point. So having stability, uh, more stability in the prices and more security in, in the investment. It's also one of the, of the main points which came back from the public consultation, together with non, uh, not uh, harming the short-term markets and also developing uh, flexibility. So I think it's worth to, to, to note, together with, of course, protecting consumers. And maybe a, a, small, um, uh, on the, um, a small one on the peak shaving products, because it's linked to your view, so to your point on system operator services. Indeed, today you have so uh, ancillary services which are linked to frequency, so this is balancing, or not linked to frequency, so inertia, voltage control. And we propose um, in the reform to have a, a new non-frequency ancillary service, which should be peak shaving, so really only for demand response, uh, and for T and TSO to be able to call for demand response at peak times. So this is also to recognize the role of demand response and, uh, and the importance also to, to be um, in control of the consumption and to value flexibility from demand, so without further investment, but using what we have today uh, for, for the, the operation of the grid. Mia. Mia Petra, I'm going to have to go for a round of closing, Ralph. I'll get to you in a moment. Mia Petra, uh, a final closing thought from you, touching on some of those points raised by the audience or on something new as well. I, I'm happy to take the peak demand and peak shaving because there are a lot of opportunities. One of them being the digitalizing, and I'm very worried that the, uh, we have the smart metering uh, legislation ready, but the implementation is bad. Only half of the European can read there consumption and that, that would help of course a lot half of the people I, I've checked the figure in Finland it is 99% so that is also the la uh, lost opportunity which could be better used for this one now thank you Christoph a final thought yeah I agree I think we definitely have to flexibilize demand um, I think the question on the peak shaving product 
will be a little bit complex. Now there will be a lot of details. What's the reference line? So you don't pay for something which you, <laughs> you kind of make your own business case by just uh, doing something and not really delivering something. That's a challenge. No, but I, I fully agree on, on the idea of integrating demand both on peak shaving but maybe also on redispatch products and so on. No? Um, and secondly, I, I think we made a lot of discussion today about uh, financing and, and, the, and the finance side of investment, and I fully agree we need that. We need um, a, a good, reliable um, um, framework. We need uh, the, the price signals going through. But I think on top of that, and that's very important, is that we also get the approval procedures right and that we get the networks, because an investor will never uh, invest into a plant, let's say, in Bavaria, if it's not sure that he will have hydrogen in Bavaria at the time when the plant is ready. Uh, or if you, if you as, as Martin said, if it takes seven years or more, no, now the prices are high. Maybe people want to invest. Uh, I, could, I could name you many people who say at a power price of 140 euros in Germany, base, I can invest easily in onshore wind, but you don't invest it in, in a year or so because it just takes so much time. No? And that's something we also need to tackle, not just the money, but uh, get things done better. Martin? Um, simple message from me, the energy trilemma, um, so affordability, resilience and decarbonisation is very real. I think energy security has really uh, brought some new problems to the table uh, and I think that we should never lose sight of affordability in the consumer perspective in all of this discussion. We really do think that the energy market design proposal is a, a very credible and, and, and well thought through piece of work, but we do have real concerns and they're not based on doomsday scenarios. We do have real concerns about, I'd say, longer-term capacity mechanisms and, and how to make sure that there is financial and project developer certainty in business cases. Otherwise, we're going to get to a place that we don't like, and it's about 24 months away. And Ralph, finally, I got to you. The final word. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, just wanted to uh, quickly react on the peak shaving. Um, I think while the, the instrument is interesting, what I regret is the way it um, excludes behind the meter generation. But because I think, um, just to give you an example, you, you have in our industry, you have cogeneration power plants that produce process heat plus electricity. Now, sometimes they are not running uh, simply because there's no heat demand at that moment. Now, would, wouldn't that help to shave the peak in demand for the grid, if there would be an incentive that they start for two hours and operate. Now, the commission proposal unfortunately excludes that behind the meter generation can benefit from that. I think if you think really about avoiding peaks in the grid, there's no reason why you would do that. Um, I'm stop here. Well, thank you very much uh, to all our speakers online and in person and all our audience online and in person. If you want to continue this debate on social media or your preferred platform, please use the hashtag EA Debates and you can also follow EA Green EU as, uh, as, a, as, as a, an account on Twitter if you want to. But thank you very much. We will be back with more debates in the very near future. So have a great day. <laughs>